So I confess those announcements were completely genuine and I wanted to buy just a few minutes. <laughs> it is a rainy evening. You will not want to zone out tonight. Amen. We have some extraordinary meetings lately, I think. Yes. Last week, the concept of oaks and the reed will undoubtedly be with us for years to come. Would you all say so? Yes. Tonight, we're going to forego our historical review. We're going to take the balance of the time that would usually be apportioned to that endeavor, and we're going to allocate it to an overview of the geography of Israel. We're going to do that so that before we get into the text tonight, you will understand in advance some of the things that you come to. Now, I'm doing that because it's pertinent to our topic tonight. I'm doing it because it's essential to your understanding of the Bible. And I'm doing it just because I can and I want to. So we're going to walk through some slides together. Then we're going to read the chapter. And then you'll see those slides reappear during the chapter. Do not zone out during the geographical overview. Not if you want to be able to navigate the Bible without being lost in it. Are you ready? Yes. Oh, man, that, that was weak. Are you ready? Yes. All right, let's take our first slide, Pastor. So on the screen before you, you see the major issues that we're going to cover tonight. Ammon up in the right-hand corner, Moab on the middle right, Edom in the lower right, and then the kingdom of Judah on, on the west or left-hand side. We're going to look at some things that sound boring at first. Longitudinal zones, elevation issues, those kind of things. But I promise by the end of this, they will not be boring. In fact, to, you're, you're going to understand biblical travel in a new way. To understand Israel as a whole in the Bible... We've looked at the language very often. We've looked at uh, the people very often. We do not often take an in-depth dive into the geography unless you've gone with me to Israel. Tonight, you're going to get a little bit of a foreshadow of what it would be like to be in Israel, except you're going to have to look at pictures rather than uh, stand in these places. Let's take our next slide. You've probably heard preachers say this for years, but it's important that you begin to visualize it. You've heard that Israel is a land bridge between continental empires. Notice that just to the south and west of Israel is Africa. That was a powerhouse during most of the biblical period. I mean, once warfare got beyond sticks and stones, uh, Africa, it faded from its prominence. Having said that, this, uh, this is an important location. Yeah. Notice that you would have to go through Israel to get to Asia, another powerhouse of the biblical time. Now, Europe doesn't come into play for many years, but just below Europe on that map, in the middle of the yellow line, you should think Byzantine, Constantinople. You should think Turkey. Think all the churches of Asia Minor, uh, Minor, all of those kind of things. All right, are you beginning to get it? Look at this next one. Now, while you're staring at that, I'm going to read you something. Stay staring at that map. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I'm reading from Ezekiel 5.5. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. 
When you think of a globe, I get that you think of it differently than this. But this is how the Bible describes it. North America was not in view in the Bible. Neither was Fiji. Neither was South America. This was the biblical world. And Israel is very much in the center of it. Amen. Do you see to the southeast of Israel that giant thing that says Arabian Desert? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's all that's there. Okay? And that is going to play prominently into what is happening. But Israel is being presented as small and insignificant by preachers very often. We do that in an effort to emphasize a kind of David and Goliath motif, like little Israel and great big Rome. But the Bible actually declares it differently than that. That's true, but geographically Israel is put in the center of the world in a way that Rome is not, yeah. a way that the Nubian Empire wasn't, a way that the Assyrian Empire is not. And that's about to come into play. Turkey and Europe couldn't trade with Africa without going through Israel. God wanted his nation in the center of all human activity on the earth at the time the Bible was written. Wow. Think about it from that perspective. Let's take our next map. Now, during the years of the uh, Gulf Wars, you may have heard terms like Levant. I want to start with a bigger view than that. Since that Arabian desert is right in the center of your screen, and you might have guessed in the Arabian desert not a lot grows, there's not a lot of water there, there's not a lot of ways to travel through it, the area that becomes important in the area is called the Fertile Crescent. Now, most of you have heard of the Fertile Crescent. You probably stayed up late at night and watched how aliens uh, seeded humanity there or something stupid like that on the History Channel. <laughs> I want to cover it from a biblical standpoint today. Uh, one of the reasons that Israel is so important is that it is geographically a part of that fertile crescent. When traveling between nations, suffice it to say, you wanted to remain in areas where life could be sustained, as opposed to the Arabian desert. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's take our next slide. The fertile crescent is divided into two areas. The one that is on the right in the northeast, you might be able to see on the map, is called Mesopotamia. I'm sure you're aware that that is both Iraq today and Mesopotamia means the land between the two rivers. That's because of the Tigris and the Euphrates River there. There's agriculture there, cultivation there, some of the oldest on the earth. You may not be aware, unless you listen to Barack Obama refuse to call Israel Israel and he referred to it as the Levant, don't look down on the Levant for that reason. Look down on Barack Obama, not the Levant. The Levant is on your left. This is the area of lower Lebanon and all of Israel. Levant means elevated region. It's different than Mesopotamia. It's not a land between two rivers. It's watered entirely differently. In fact, the Bible says that God loves this land and that he would water it with the rains of heaven. It's not watered from rivers on the earth. It's not... Uh, it's not faithless, it's full of faith. It has to receive rain from heaven. And the dew point in this area means it's different than most places on the planet. If you put a flat rock in a field, when you wake up in the morning, dew has collected on the flat rock. The Levant, Israel, is located right in the middle of. Are you learning something already? Yes. Are you bored? No. Good, because I have a lot more to go. <laughs> Let's take our next slide. The two areas that almost every one of those freaky alien shows uh, 
zeroes in on are what are referred to as cradles of civilization. They say, oh man, the Sumerians up in Iraq and, and then the Egyptians, really every good thing came from them. With all respect to our Egyptian in the room, they gave us a lot of good things. Most, I think, they inherited from Nephilim, but, but I, I mean, whatever. I've been in a four-way traffic stop in Egypt, and I do not believe they built the Great Pyramid. I want you to notice that there is no way to get between Egypt and Iraq unless you go through Israel. He said, but wait a minute, couldn't we go more easterly? Couldn't we? No. There's a giant Arabian desert there, and if you value water or would like something to eat, then that is not possible. You do not cross it east to west, which means that the kingdoms of the world had to traipse through the Levant, through Israel, to be able to have commerce with each other, to interact with each other. You beginning to see how God gets your attention? Would you like to go deeper? Good, let's do it. In our next one, we're going to see four cross-sections of Israel. Now, you may not have seen it done this way, uh, but it's an important one. In Israel, these are called longitudinal zones. In fact, they're called that anywhere in the world. Longitudinal is just a fancy way to say it's a north-south thoroughfare. Okay? Looking at the left side or west side of your screen, there's a coastal plain in Israel. This is where the Valley of Sharon is. It's where agriculture is produced. If you've been with me there, we spent a lot of time in this area. It's the highway that I like the best because you get to see the sea. Do you know who else liked it the best? The empires of the world. Okay, The coastal plain is where people like to travel. The hill country, which is just to the east of it. This is a place of elevation. This is where the patriarchs traveled. If you trace their routes through the Bible, they're almost always in these hill country cities traveling along the ridge. They didn't go up and down the mountains because they were patriarchs. They're old. They stayed on top of the mountains and walked. Okay? Next to that, you see a rift valley. This is the Jordan Valley Rift. It's one of the longest rifts in the world. I don't want to get into that. We'll just focus on Israel. Its floor, its valley, is 1,350 feet below sea level. It runs from the Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. It really goes all the way into Africa, but that's a whole other subject. The difference between the hill country and the rift is rather immense. If you're in the hill country, you're at an elevation of 3,000 feet. If you're in the valley rift, you have dropped below sea level 1,350 feet. That means to ascend from one to the other is an, a 4,000-foot climb. Tonight involves that, okay? And I wanted you to know that. Just in case you're still missing that, let me catch one more thing. The Transjordan Plateau. When you're traveling in Israel along the Jordan River and you look out your window, you can see that the country of Jordan has squeezed a few little settlements in there, but mostly you're looking at something that is Arizona-like. It is a small flat outside the river and then immense cliffs and then there's a plateau on top. That's the King's Highway. Okay, the King's Highway ran right down the Transjordan Plain. If you missed that, I have it on the slide for you here in just a minute. I want to show you the geographical regions again. When you see the coastal plain, if you start at the uh, southwest corner and you start to work your way north, you see that the hill country intrudes upon it. That means that at some point, if you're on that international highway in the coastal plain, you either have to go over Mount Carmel 
or you have to go around Mount Carmel. They went around Mount Carmel, which puts you in the Jezreel Valley, which is conveniently located, like uh, pictured like an arrowhead up there. Do you see it? As if the map is pointing to one place on planet Earth where some significant stuff is going to happen. Like, pay attention here. You can see the Rift Valley and then the Transjordan Plateau. That way you get your four longitudinal zones straight. Now, when I say that that arrow points to some significant stuff, when I say Megiddo, it's right there. If I say Har Megiddo or Valley of Megiddo, it's right there. If I say Jezreel, it is the Jezreel Valley. I don't know, maybe you've been reading the book of Revelation or watching a Bruce Willis movie or something. (laughs) But you are to recognize Armageddon right there. Let me show you the highways so that you can catch this. What I'm saying is that the coastal plains had a coastal highway. At some point, it had to go into the Jezreel Valley where it connects to the road of the patriarchs. You see that the Rift Valley does the same thing. These are north-south thoroughfares, but at some point, they do have a few intersections east and west. And that point is the Jezreel Valley. You following me so far? All right. Well, now that we've covered that, let's let's hit a few fun things. Is that all right? That King's Highway, by the way, it goes straight to a city called Damascus. So what road do you think Paul was on when he got knocked down? Okay, let me show you how these interact. Let's go to the next map. Because from time to time you needed to get from one highway to another, but the terrain was, uh, was extreme between them, the east-west intersections are all around a few cities. Megiddo, Betshan were gateway cities precisely because of this. You may remember in the book of Joshua that they had iron chariots and uh, the Canaanites were quite unwilling to let them, them go. And there was a big fight. That's because... It's like controlling the interstate system for the world since it all has to converge on Israel and then within Israel it has to converge in one place. And that means that it's somewhat unique or rather not unique but uh, something that could be deduced. If there was going to be a major battle between world empires, that's where it would be. So God foreshadowed it with things like, I don't know, Deborah and Sisera, okay, or Gideon and the Ishmaelites. All those battles took place right there. Lest you think we just go over geography, let me show you a few more things that might help you with your Bible interpretation. If you were standing in Megiddo in the middle of the Jezreel Valley and you were facing to the east and you looked up, you would see the Nazareth Ridge. Then you would see Mount Tabor. Then you would see the Hill of Moray. By the way, the Hill of Moray is located right next to the village of Nain, where Jesus raised someone from the dead. But I'd like to focus for a minute on what Jesus looked outside of his hometown in Saul every day. You thought that Jesus grew up in the sticks. Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, he did. He grew up in the sticks. Right next to Interstate 10, Interstate 45, Interstate 288, and Interstate 59. He got to see the nations passing through and converging on one place. African caravans, Asian caravans, Turkish caravans, or whatever they were called at that time. That gave him exposure to an awful lot of things. But I digress. That's not our point tonight. Where we're going tonight, if we could advance that slide, where we're going tonight 
is that if you are on the hill country road, the road of the patriarchs, that would be in the center of this screen here. This is a topographical outlay, if you will. And you wanted to go from there, say down to the Dead Sea. Ten miles from Jerusalem is Jericho. There, uh, ten miles as a crow flies. But they're almost 4,000 feet difference in elevation. Since it's raining, we might as well say it, in Jerusalem, you get as much rain as you do in London, about 24 inches a year. Of course, in Jericho, you get less than four inches in a year, and they're only 10 miles apart. It's a land of diverse geography. Those four longitudinal zones divide things up in a way that help determine how you travel in the Bible. They divide things up as to who might want to live in an area and hold it and cannot let it go. The land of Judah, the southern kingdom, can be divided into seven distinct geographical zones by itself, but that's the subject of another Bible study. Let's return to our very first map, which I think, there we go. Tonight, then, you're going to see people from the northeast, Ammonites, people due east of Judah, the Moabites, people southeast of Judah, the Edomites, and people called the Munites or Moanites in some translations come from south of Judah. We know which roads they had to go on. Not only are cities mentioned that they crossed through, but we know which roads they had to go on because there are no other ways to get there without becoming a professional mountain climber. Anybody been to Peru? Yeah. Okay, yes. I don't have to explain it to you. That means tonight in the text, parts of the text will come alive when you realize that if you're standing in Jerusalem, you're standing 4,000 feet above looking down at an area that is, say, on the level of En Gedi, which the text indicates tonight. Now, that was your geographical overview, but I want to show it to you one more time in a different way. I have some new software, and I'm excited about it. <laughs> I rotated the software 360 degrees, which only took me eight hours of Logos training to figure out how to do it. And after I rotated it, we are now looking at a map facing the west. Same map we've been looking at. In the center of the map, uh, right in the center of the Dead Sea is a green line where En Gedi is. Now I say that because when we read about the Pass of Ziz tonight, they're going from a, a Dead Sea Jordan Valley Rift, 1,350 feet below sea level, and they have to ascend towards Jerusalem 4,000 feet and face an entrenched army. Okay? I want you to think about that as it's going, because it's got to be very discouraging to do that and then get slaughtered anyway, which made me very happy. Now that you have an overview, and by the way, everybody who attends these meetings, you'll get these maps, you'll, they're all in our OneNote. We want you to understand it. It will bring your Bible reading to life. Now that we understand the geography we're about to read about, Miss Jennifer, the world's sexiest grandma, is going to read chapter 20 tonight, and I want you to listen for things like the Pass of Ziz, and listen to the wording surrounding it and see if it helps you now that you know what you know. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom from the other side of the sea. It is all 
Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who in heaven is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built it in a, have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in the presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the procession you gave us as an inheritance? Possession. Possession, sorry. Gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All of the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you Way will up. Find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerul. You will not have to fight this battle. Take your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korathites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Hallelujah. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Amnon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooked the desert and looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. 
So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing, and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect. On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Erica, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Erica to this day. Then they, led, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them the cause to rejoice over their enemies. Come on. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they had heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace. For God had given to him rest on every side. So Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother's name was Azubah, daughter of Shehai. He walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. And the people still had not set their hearts on, on God of their fathers. The other events of Jehoshaphat's reigns from beginning to end are written in the annals of Jehu, of Hananiah, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Later, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, made an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who was guilty of wickedness. He agreed with him to construct a fleet of trading ships. After these were built as Azaron, Gibber, Eliezer, son of Dodabu of Moresh, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have made an alliance with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. The ships were wrecked and were not able to set sail to trade. Now, you should have no trouble understanding that some areas have a little more waterfall than others. Currently tonight, we're getting our showers, but I want to let you know in advance that tonight we're going to be standing on the high ground. Amen! There's no telling what the three of us might do with any given chapter on a Monday, but tonight we're standing on the high ground. Amen. Now, earlier we promised you that we are not going to review, and we are going to stick to that. Prior to reading verse 1 and 2, though, I want to remind you of a couple concepts. We covered whole sections of a man's life and reign in a single evening. And he began as an oak of righteousness that was strong, that set a godly standard. Then he had this middle period in his life that was shameful and reed-like. But the man repented well and learned to be an oak of righteousness. Amen. They began to enact reforms in Israel, the likes of which had not been seen since the time of David. They're destroying idolatry, sending out missionaries, if you will, to the rest of Israel to yeah. teach the Torah. Now we're picking up in verse 1 and 2 after those reforms. Brother Linton, read those first couple verses for me. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who come to meet Megamites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazan Tamar, that is, in Gate. So after this, after what? After revival and reform in Israel is when they march against him. Man, this is so much like the enemy that we face. Jehoshaphat digs in deep, 
plants roots that are oaks of righteousness. Then after this is when these guys want to fight. Now, if you notice, we have Moabites, Ammonites, Munites. We have at least three different nations that want to fight. I'm going to put one of the slides back on the screen that we looked at earlier and tell you a little bit about each of these people. So you see, we have the Moabites that are located directly across En Gedi that you just heard mentioned as Linton read the text. Then we have Ammonites as well. Both of these people groups are relatives of Israel. You can read about them in Genesis 19, verses 37 and 38. We elected not to read it tonight because we're not standing in Mississippi. But these guys are related to Israel and they came about through interesting circumstances. Now it says they're on the other side of the sea in the text, and in parentheses it says En Gedi. Well, how do we know that it's in En Gedi? There's a few seas. We could be talking about the Mediterranean, presumably. It's because we understand the geography, and so does the writer of the NIV. They put En Gedi here because we see Moab is directly across the sea where En Gedi is on that map. It may be a bit difficult for you to see. And there is no other route for them to get to Jerusalem without going around and past En Gedi. So there's little words that the Bible puts in place that to us really don't have a picture. It's letting you know the path. It's letting you know where they're coming from and how they had to get to Israel. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. If a man is standing in Los Angeles and... He says he went out to the ocean. Do you have to ask whether it is the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic? No. Because while anybody who lives in California knows that the Pacific is on the West Coast and the Atlantic is on the East Coast, if you were learning this and you were on a Polynesian island, you might have to ask because you don't know the geography. The manuscript doesn't actually say Dead Sea. NIV included Dead Sea because they knew that you don't know the geography. But the Hebrew manuscript actually just says the sea, and you know which sea it is because you know the geography. All right, so we mentioned the Moabites. We mentioned the Ammonites, which are relatives. There's also the Edomites down there in the southeast. Those are also relatives. They're descendants of Esau. Now let's talk about the Mayanites. We have a slide, and this is an excerpt from Baker Encyclopedia. They're known in the Bible as Mayunim, Mayunite, and they're people living in Edom, which is the southern, southeastern portion of our map. They were dispossessed of their rich pasture lands by the Simeonites. Now, the Simeonites are landlocked in Judah, and that's important for you to remember. They attacked them, and their original land possession, they were associated with Arabs and Ammonites, and they had a prolonged hostility. You can see Judges 10 for that. They were named oppressors of Israel. So now that you understand the historical and geographical truths, these people were attacking them because Simeon attacked them first. Now that you understand that, I'm going to suggest a contextualization. This is just like your relatives teaming up with the disgruntled who left the church because they did not embrace their own calling. You have relatives that are attacking Israel. Then you have disgruntled peoples who are making a counterattack and they're teaming up together. It's coming at a time when they have taken a new bold stand for the Lord. They have 
captured the high ground in Jerusalem. They are planting oaks. There is revival. Now you have family members wanting to attack and disgruntled people who did not hold on to their callings. They are wanting to join those family members. The attack is comprised of a vast army of people that you have treated well in the past, even though they were not particularly kind to you. Remember that these people were treated pretty well. Then they were attacked and they want to retaliate. Almost like, you know, people in the past, your family members, you treated them well until God gave a revelation that this must stop and then you take a stand. Now there is an attack and they are not kind to the people of God. They're wanting to attack them. To drive this point home for us as we go through the text, let's go back to the previous map and I want to show you something. So, if the Edomites are relatives, descendants of Esau, and the Moabites and the Ammonites are relatives, descendants through Lot, you would think that they would be supportive of the call of Israel. They were given their own land. They were given their land by God. They should stand back and celebrate Israel having their own land. But they don't. They're angry. They, they want to come and fight, and they find a group of people called the Meunites that were dispossessed because they were wicked. The Simeonites settled right where the Minionites are, and the three nations that joined them, or that they joined, they're based on being unhappy with what God has done. Now, here's where the geography is fun, and we're going to do this regularly. Not only do we know the routes that they attacked from, not only do we know the roads that they traveled on, we know that they came from a very low place and had to climb to a very high place. Our word to you, just based on the geography, is stay on the high ground. Amen. Don't get down in the swamp with the disgruntled. Don't go to them and try to straighten things out. Stand where God called you on the high ground. Let them wear themselves out trying to reach you. Hey, let's pick up in verse 3. Wow. I love this. Alarms. I want to show you that slide. Of course, that word is Yareh. There are a lot of ways to think about it, but the way that struck me is deep concern of pain or unfavorable circumstance. I would say that describes fear pretty well. A lot of translations just say they were fearful. Now, this is a natural response, isn't it? Yeah. You hear an overwhelming army's coming, you're filled with deep Concern and pain. <laughs> well, that's expected. That's predictable. How do you feel when your loved ones are threatened by people that were supposed to support you but don't? Of course, you feel the same way. What Jehoshaphat did, though, was supernatural. Oh, come on. Our next slide we want to show you demonstrates what Jehoshaphat did. And listen, we have excellent, excellent translations. We are so blessed to not be dependent upon the Latin Vulgate solely in reading King James. <laughs> but when the NIV says, seek, sought out to seek the face of God, that's not exactly what a Hebrew means by that. It's to set his face, or his ponia, to seek God. What that means, what we're describing, is that the man is not just whispering a prayer. 
This is an overwhelming army is coming. I am filled with fear. The Greek text there says phobos. And his response is that he is going to set his panium, his face, to seeking God. Saints, husbands, fathers, as a leader, what we have to do is set our face to seeking God. Jehoshaphat does well here and responds in a supernatural way when faced with a very natural problem. It's a real army. They're flesh and blood. He has real fear that is coursing through his veins. But more than just whisper or prayer, the whole man's countenance, if you will, is set, is fixed with his eyes upon the living God. You could get the impression that while he was tempted to stare at the armies that were facing him, he forced himself to Teshuvah and turn and stare into the face of God. Can I tell you, the solution comes not from staring at the depth of your problem, but from staring at the depth of the God that solves the problem. Church, is it time to turn our face towards the Lord? Yes. Now, as a leader, Jehoshaphat set his face to seek Yahweh. And what happened after that? He is standing on the high ground, seeking the face of God rather than his problem. And something amazing happens after that. Come on. The people under him start to follow what he is doing. They see him on the high ground, and they want to be up there with him, and they begin to do the same thing. I want to hand out a few scriptures. We see some hands. Rob, you get Malachi 3.16, and that's, no, read through 18. Nolan, you get Zephaniah 3.8 through 9. Paul Rosales, Isaiah 30, 19 through 21. Nick Rosales, 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 8. Cody, you get Revelation 1 and verse 9. Then uh, JJ, you get Psalm 56, 3 and 4. And Steve Thomas, 2 Chronicles 11, 16 through 17. Spencer, you get Isaiah 37, Three through six. A few scriptures. It's just a few. Just a few. <laughs> Each one's pertinent, I promise. Malachi three sixteen through eighteen. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine. Pause right there. Those who feared the Lord began to talk to each other in Malachi. And what did God did do? He listened and heard. Man, when they were in that situation, the Lord was recording their reactions. Come on. When we are in those situations, when we are alarmed, when we're yare, that's a natural response. The supernatural response is knowing that God is recording our reactions. Being mindful that God's listening whenever we are in those situations. He is remembering those who turn to His face rather than than their fears. The Lord takes note every time you're in a situation like that and He watches exactly what you do and He remembers it. How many times do you see where God is watching, He sees, then He knows what is in your heart or knows what's going on. He is watching how you react in these situations, whether you're going to stand on the high ground of His Word or go down into the valley where your problem is. Anybody got an Android phone? Yes. Yes. Have you ever had Google interrupt your conversation because it thought you were asking it a question. Yes. 
just pretend God is in your phone and you'll do just fine. He's listening like Google to everything that you say. Pick up in verse 17. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasure possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion man spares his son of the And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Man, this is. This is how the Lord makes up His treasured possession. He watches and sees how you handle trials. And He makes a treasured possession based off what you do and what you don't do. This treasured possession is comprised only of those that love and prefer His kingship. Okay, that's pretty obvious. But you want to know how that's proven? That is proven or disproven in times of alarm. Times of alarm have a way of revealing... Where, where your kingship is, whether it's in problems, emotions, having things all together, or it's in the Lord your God. Act like a son, and you will be spared like a son. You'll be a Come part on. of that remnant. Act like a son in trials, and he will treat you like a son. That's a good word. Who's got Zephaniah 3, 8 through 9? Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up and testify, I have decided to assemble the nations and gather the kingdoms pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the people. Then you will what? Keep reading, Paul. Your teachers will be hidden no more. 
Where have they been? Where have the teachers been? They've been hiding? No. No, the hearts of the people have been unable to hear it. They've been stuffed up in their ears and their eyes have been blinded. Though they were close to the truth, they could not understand until the living God afflicted them. But in that affliction, it allowed them to understand the hope that God had for them. They began to see something in the exact same place that they had never seen before. Perhaps you've been through three or four services, but it wasn't until God afflicted you that you could really hear it. God does that so that we might grow. Keep going, Paul. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Saints, we've talked about longitudinal lines. We've talked about different routes. There is a king's highway, and there is one that leads straight to his throne room. And it's not on the earth. It is not carved out of a path for goats and for cattle and for carts. It is a path that whether you turn to the left or to the right, the word of God and his burning fire will point you towards the way of holiness. When you're on the way of holiness, you will partner with men who understand the way of holiness. You will not be straying to the left or right where a wicked fool dwells because you've been afflicted and you're listening to the voice of God and the bread of adversity. God gives us these things so that we might be unified with each other. His adversity is God's kindness in our life, leading us to salvation, leading us to holiness. As we experience adversity upon that path, it binds us to those who are real brothers. It teaches us to stand with those that are holy. This is the Lord being gracious in our life and giving us a real family. Somebody say real family. Real family. Any family that is not based upon the highway of holiness is not actually family. But we have a real one on the high ground of the living God. All right, let's learn a new principle. Let's teach ourselves a new trick. Somebody say adversity. Adversity. Advantages us. Advantages us. See, it gives you the opportunity to overcome an obstacle by depending on the Lord. It gives you the opportunity to see who in your number does the same thing. Oh, come on. That way you can hang out with them. This keeps us from hanging out and going, oh, man, I'm, I'm on fire. I'm getting heated up. It hurts. It's hard. And you start going, I'm getting purified. God is eliminating things that don't belong. I'm going for broke. You want to go with me? Oh, come on. That's what this church was built on. That's where we're going. That's where we've been, and it's where we're headed. You know, that's how the Apostle Paul felt. Who has 2 Timothy for us? 2 Timothy 1, 7, 3. For the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Yeah. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, oh, or be his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Yeah. Man, join me in suffering. You notice that Jehoshaphat was the first to turn his face and seek the Lord? Yeah, he was. And then others joined him, even yeah. in the face of suffering? You know, suffering is how you... Verify your calling. Suffering is how you verify your calling. Don't tell me about your calling and what God has called you to if you're not willing to share how much you've suffered for that calling. And then when you've shared in that suffering, when you have suffered, it causes something to happen. Other men who are walking on the road of the patriarchs, other men who want to be on the high ground, they are drawn to that calling like a magnet. 
When other men see what you have put into the fire and received out refined in gold, they want to join in that. Amen. Not a type of fa a Facebook suffering that you post and say what happened during the day. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that is brought on by you staying on the high ground. Yes. When that happens, men are drawn to it. This is the unifying work of the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness doesn't so much work here at the altar than it does when you are out there suffering for what he told you at the altar. Come on. The spirit of holiness works in you when you are faced with adversity and you are going through it. He is able to bring us into joining with one another in suffering for the gospel. And i got to tell you, there's nothing that draws my heart more than someone that I can see as suffering for the high ground. It makes me want to be next to them. It makes me want to join in with them. It's got Revelation 1, 9 through 10. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus. Would you even read this if he was complaining about his living conditions? No. Would you even read this if he was talking about how unfair his employment was? Would you even read this if the man was unsatisfied with the God who called him because it simply wasn't worth what he was going through. No. The reason that you love this is because of what he endured because of the calling. Yeah. Let's read it again with those eyes. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, this has always been the domain of real Christian leaders. <laughs> and it has always will be the response of sincere believers to follow men like this. Come on. He didn't say the suffering that is mine. He said the suffering that is ours because he's inviting them to the joy of the life he has. Yes. The desire of our Father and your leaders is that you would be able to say, I, your brother and companion in suffering, Come on. that your heart would say, don't leave me out, Lord. You can't do that. If you're grumbling and complaining about your circumstance. Today, right now, we pick up our cross and that ends. Yeah. No one in this room, not now, not ever again, grumbles about their present circumstances. They are an opportunity for you to overcome an obstacle and that's all they are. Yeah. Grow up, stand up, and let us join you in it. We're going to follow the example set by our leaders. It has to become our personal conviction, our way of life. It has to become your innate reaction yes. to any alarming situation. Wow. Who has Psalm 56 for us? Verses 3 through 4. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Man, what can mere mortal man do to me? What a statement. Yeah. Man, people talk about how they're not afraid all of the time. They but when, lie. You, when you see a man of God that has actually been freed of his fear of man, it's because he was advantaged by adversity. It's because he's standing on the high ground of God and he no longer DCD'd. <laughs> Do you know who is speaking here? This is King David when he was facing difficulty. He is the great, great, great grandfather of Jehoshaphat. Oh, the people learned from watching Jehoshaphat's courage in seeking God. Awesome. And Jehoshaphat looked back to his great, great, great grandfather 
And so he sought the face of the living God, set his face to the living God, and did not fear mortal man, no matter how large the army was. Our leaders have handed us something that we must take into our own being and hand to the next generation. Amen. Who has Second Chronicles 11? Second Chronicles 11, 16, and 17. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, three years, walking in the ways of David and Solomon during this time. Now, this same thing happened with Rehoboam. He was the great-grandfather of Jehoshaphat. You know what this tells us? That these things are imparted spiritually. These things are imparted from father and son through the gospel. These things are imparted from discipler to disciple. But they're also imparted generationally. Amen. This happened in David. You're seeing this in David's great-grandson. Tonight, we're focused on Jehoshaphat's response as a leader but also, eight generations after him, a son in his lineage would stand up in the same way under an even greater threat. So these two men are sons of mine, and I'm proud of them, just like I'm proud of you. Their thoughts went to who came before and who Jehoshaphat patterned his life after. You know where my thoughts go? Who is coming after that will do this? In other words, my thoughts go to you. Let's read Isaiah 37, 3 through 6. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. And when children come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to deliver them, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his, ma- whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Mm. Mm. When King Hezekiah, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, "Tell your master, this is what the Lord says: Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed." I love that Isaiah calls them underlings because that's what they are. More than that, this is one of the tipping points of world history. If Hezekiah fell on his face and submitted to the kings of Assyria, there would be no Judaism left. There'd be no family for Messiah to come through. The whole world would be whatever the Assyrian Empire left in its wake. He had no idea how important this moment was, but he did have forefathers that went before him. And he's eight generations after Jehoshaphat, but he rises up and does exactly what Jehoshaphat did. This is where we get the great prophecies like... What is taken root below will bear fruit above. Everything the leaders in this ministry are doing is to plant something in you that will bear fruit above the surface in the years to come. Saints, these are the kings of Judah. They are your forerunners. We have to learn to do what they did and impart it spiritually and also generationally to our descendants and our disciples. Everything hinges on what you do in moments of alarm. We have to set our face to seeking the Lord. That is what you've seen demonstrated. That is what you must do. And that is what you must demonstrate to those that are coming after you. They are watching and scrolls of remembrance are being written. 
These are the only people that make it into the inheritance of the Lord. Pause right there real quick. I've been with Eric since 2008. I've seen him with guns in his face. I've seen him when crazy phone calls come through. I've seen him with all kinds of what would look like disasters happen in the moment while we're trying to accomplish something. What I watched over the years was him immediately start to cry out to God no matter what we were doing, whether we were at a restaurant, whether we were in a truck driving, whether we were stuck in the mud, whether we were surrounded by cartel, whether we were being interrogated in Turkey, everything. And you know what? I started noticing that I tend to do the same thing. My first reaction was to cry out to the Lord in that moment, not make a phone call to someone else somewhere else, not anything else, logically think through it, but to cry out to the Lord. Now, I didn't notice, but where I got that from were years of watching Eric do that in time and time again, being put in that situation, and it was being formed in me to do the same thing. That is discipleship, and that's how it's passed on. When you do the same thing in situations when people are watching, and that's your natural response, the people watching will will learn to do the same thing because they see God come through for you. Now, that's a, a very, very kind thing to say. If you would like an unabridged version of every fault that exists within me, see my wife after this meeting and she'll handle that. But this is what we are trying to train people to do. And it is what the kingdom is dependent upon. If all it takes is a little bit of fear for you to back away from what God has called, you will never get anywhere with God. We know what it takes. And we want to build that into you. Let's pick up in verse 5. The new courtyard. Look, we're going to refrain from preaching on the need to stand up in the assembly. We're not going to do it at this point because we are certainly going to monopolize a verse later to do exactly that. Let's go to verse 6. Now, saints, we want to think about this for just a moment. What he's praying is not something that is ethereal. It's not about the God of Fiji. It's not about Alaska. It's not about Siberia. He's praying about the nations that are surrounding Israel. Let's put that screen back up for just a moment. When he says, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. We're speaking about all of Asia Minor, all of Asia, all of Africa and the Arabian peoples that are surrounding Israel and are hostile towards Israel. It's not in theory. It's the reality that is enclosing upon them from the nations of the world, from the north, from the east, from the south, with the sea backing them. There is nowhere to turn except to the living God, but he knows that he has dominion over all of the nations that are surrounding the one spot that God said is mine and is the center of the world. We'd like to take a look at this verse in the NASB with you for a moment. In the NASB it says, And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. Now, 
He's presenting God as God of our fathers. Jehoshaphat had more than one father. Some were excellent, some were not. But the same God who called them shaped them through discipline and deliverance. He had many examples, but the same God is be being presented as his father who shaped him as through discipline and deliverance. Now notice in our NIVs it says, you are God in heaven. It says here that you are God in the heavens. Plural. There is more than one heaven. And the Hebrew word there is shamayim, which is plural, and it means heavens. But the God of Israel occupies the highest place among all of the heavens. Yeah. Come Meaning on. He, he sits enthroned on his own high ground in the highest of all the plural spiritual powers. Now, then he says, are you not ruler over all the kingdoms? There's more than one nation. But the people of Yahweh occupy the center of his eyes. Amen. You remember that little map? Yeah. They're right in the center. They seem to be the smallest. God chose one nation, but through that nation, he would be dominant over all the other nations. The God of Israel is sovereign over all things, and he placed his people in their specific position to teach the powers in the heavens and the nations on earth about his greatness. Look, to further emphasize this point, we did some word study for you. And we're going to show it to you on a, on a screen here in just a second. But when our translators ask the question, are you not ruler? <laughs> to be honest, that's just a little weak. This is based on the Hebrew 49.10 Moshel, which is probably said grossly incorrectly. <laughs> it, of course, means ruler. We consulted the LXX because there's many words in Greek that could be ruler. This one is a derivative of kurios, and it is Strong's number 2961, kureo. And I want to show you how it's translated throughout the Greek Septuagint of the Older Testament. Come on. Ruler, rulers, the one who exercises dominion, the one who lords it over, the master over. The master of masters, oh, yeah. the Lord who lords over, the one who dominates, yeah. the Lord of lords, the ruler over, the rule, the ruled, and the ruling. That's a little more emphatic, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The point is clear. The Lord is master. He's the dominant power over all, regardless of whether we're talking about in the heavens or on the earth or which nation on earth we're talking about. Think about what this means. It means that he can and he does use every situation for the benefit of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Isn't that exactly what Paul said in Romans 8, 28? Yeah. Do you have it on your fridge or a bumper sticker or a pillow your mom quilted for you? Wouldn't it be better if we demonstrated it like a banner in our life in any and every situation? Amen. When you're a friend of God, you know He is for you, saints. You know He rules over all. You don't complain about circumstance because of the very things that He uses to perfect you to be His inheritance. Amen. Hey, what's verse 7? O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the Abraham, your <laughs> oh, to be a friend of the dominator of the earth yeah. and the heavens. Come on. You know, some translations, 
actually say, you are the dominator, as if it's happening perpetually everywhere the Lord goes. Now, Jehoshaphat here is calling out upon an ancestral friendship with that kind of God. He's calling out to the sovereign Lord during his time of trouble, during an alarming situation. That is where he appeals to the fact that his origin point was a man who was a friend with that kind of God. Saints, I'm going to tell you tonight, just on a point-like fashion, your intimacy with God is everything in your calling. We can teach you rules. We can teach you regulations. We can teach you scriptures and walk through Strong's numbers together. But if you do not learn to cultivate an intimacy with the living God, it is all for naught. We have a few scriptures that will help you learn to cultivate an intimacy with the living God. God. Hey, to set the ground for these scriptures. Y'all know that song? I am a friend of God. Come on, help me. How's it go? Yeah, get that completely out of your mind. Okay? We're, we're talking about something entirely better than that. It's, it's not some retired night room singer that is trying to rebirth a career. We're talking about an actual friendship. The kind that you would die for. Yeah. Who's ready to read? Brenton, Isaiah 41, verse 8. Paul Rosales, James 23. Nolan, Exodus 33, 11. You can begin in Isaiah when you get there. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. Yeah. Saints, consider this. But you, O Israel, my servant. Then he refers to Jacob again. Whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. We're discussing a nation that was birthed by the living God. Through the patriarch, something was cultivated by a walk of faith, by obedience to the words that were spoken and trusting in the outcome of the situation. And then it says, Abraham, my friend. Not the man who was my friend. Not the man who was my friend a long time ago. Abraham, my friend. Jehoshaphat is appealing to the living God who is able to resurrect the dead if necessary. Who is speaking to the God who is a friend with his forefather, the one who dominates the universe. This is the kind of God that he is appealing to. Now, the New Testament does not dilute this point. Instead, it continues to emphasize it. Who is James 2? And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Man, I love this passage. This is probably one of the most central themes of the Bible right here. James is reminding us that our actions are prompted from faith. And this faith is based on a friendship with God. Intimacy with him. Abraham was not righteous because he got some kind of legalistic liturgical system down. He was not called righteous or credited with righteousness because he was perfect. Because he never got anything wrong. Man, when you're friends with somebody, sometimes they're going to wrong you. But you know what? Friendship in the kingdom stays forever because it is built on trust and faith. Abraham was a friend with God and walked with him like a friend. 
They had the kind of in intimacy that you would with one of your best friends. You can't wait to hang out with them. Amen. You can't wait to see how they're doing. Yes. You can't wait to be with them. When you spend a little bit of time apart, you want to check in with them. Yes. You want to be together. And Abraham had that with the Lord. It wasn't just that, well, the pastors are teaching on prayer, so, you know, i got to get that right if I want to be good in the pastor's eyes. No, he actually had a friendship where he wanted to talk with him. Yeah. And it was credited as righteousness. Come on. Even though Abraham was a failure at times, he was a liar. He was also fearful. He had family members that were a problem. But guess what? He was friend of the dominator of the universe. And Abraham was not the only one experienced with this friendship. Consider a passage like Exodus 33:11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Look, when we were talking about Abraham, he's a man of faith. His actions showed it. But what you could miss is that the very thing that prompted his faith was a friendship with God. It was not that he was following rules. Moses was no different. The things that God told Moses to do, Moses did because God and Moses were friends. He didn't do it out of fear of punishment. He didn't do it out of consequence. He did it because they were friends. Now Moses was a friend of God, but he also conveyed that kind of intimacy and friendship to men like Joshua. You are called to this kind of friendship. Yes. You're to be in close association with the Father. Jesus makes it possible. And look at how he says it and how plainly he says it in our next slide. Well, that's kind of small. Look, everywhere you see a double box, it's proof that God wants to relate to Texans. Because the double box is a you that is plural. How would we say that? Y'all. All y'all. The word is plural in Greek. It can never be translated use guys. God was not from New Jersey. I want to read this to you like that. Y'all are my friends if you do what I command. Notice he's not just talking to Peter. He's not just talking to John or James. Y'all are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call y'all servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called y'all friends. For everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to y'all. Y'all did not choose me, but I chose y'all and appointed y'all so that y'all might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give y'all. This is my command, that we love each other. If the world hates y'all, keep. Do you notice that keep is kind of on fire in that text? If the world hates y'all, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen out of the world. That is why the world hates Everywhere you saw the double box, it's plural. It's y'all. Y'all are my friends if 
You do what I command. Verse 18 on the screen really is the key. If the world hates y'all, keep in mind, it hated me first. Keep in mind is based on a Greek verb that is in the imperative tense. Don't fall asleep. We're going to explain it to you. If he was asking a question like, you're going to keep that in mind? Then it would be an interrogative tense, asking a question. If he was simply making a statement, keep this in mind, it would be in a declarative tense. He is not doing that. It is the only imperative in the passage. He is commandingly, like a king over his subjects, like the dominator of the planet, he is forcefully commanding all of us to keep in mind that he was hated before you were. If we are his friends, then we will be hated just like he is hated. It was a command that we arrive at that position, an imperative command, the only one in these verses. Let's pick up in verse 8. calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. So saints, before we went down the road of feeling in our own hearts with what it means to be a friend of God, Jehoshaphat started out by saying, Abraham, who was your friend? He began by appealing and referencing the relationship with Abraham that he was attempting to walk in and succeeding in walking in. Now in verse 8 and 9, he's remembering the words of Solomon. What Solomon prayed must happen when calamity is coming upon us. It's almost like he had heard a few sermons about learning to remember the words of God. We have a slide for you that you may remember. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my ponium and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Jehoshaphat has remembered the friendship of the patriarchs. He has also remembered the prayer and the instructions of Solomon, his forefather. And the end result of this kind of action is healing upon the land. Come on, is there some areas you need healing in the land? Yes. When we remember what God has spoken and walk in that way, it is a guaranteed result that holiness will produce God's desire. Now he's going to shift. He's going to shift, man. It's not going to be about Abraham. It's not going to be about Solomon or his forefathers. He's going to remember the history of the relatives that chose not to follow Yahweh. Man, I wish some of you could remember the history. You forget every four years that somebody hates us and wants to kill us. And you want to leave the high ground and go down into the swamp. I'm still standing where I've always stood and they're free to come to the high ground. But I'm not going down to them. Much like Psalm 4, Jehoshaphat is about to recount the things that have happened and he will plant his feet upon the high ground and let God show him how to offer right sacrifices. We're going to have right sacrifices in this house on the high ground that God has given us. Brother, pick up in verse 10 and read through 12 for us. But now, here are men from among Moab and Mount Seir 
whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came to Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All right, we're going to break down some of these uh, nations. Ammon, Moab, Edomites, Mount Seir. We're going to break those down. But to keep the flow, he appealed based on Abraham by saying, Look, your friend, you spoke to them. He, you promised that you would give us this high ground. And we're here in the high ground. Then he appears to so- appeals to Solomon. And then Jehoshaphat is doing a kind of, look, we're at the high ground. Now we're doing what you said to do in the high ground. Then he starts mentioning these peoples. And we want to explain these to you. Deuteronomy 4.6 mentions the Edomites. It says, give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau. Wow. Everybody say, your brothers. Your brothers. Who live in Seir. That's good. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau, the hill country of Seir, as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. These Edomites who are now attacking, they are Esau's descendants. Esau is the brother of who? Jacob. Jacob. These are cousins of the people of Israel. They're Edomites, but they're called in this passage, your brothers. Now, Israel did try to take their land previously, but God wouldn't let them because they were brothers. Israel also offered to pay for anything they used while in the land of Edom. But if you know the story, they would not let them pass through the land of Edom. Edom responded hostilely. They responded to their brothers in a hostile manner because that is what they have always been. These are family members that you have tried to be peaceful towards, but they are always hostile because you are standing on the high ground, because you received the high ground, because you're doing what God told you to in the high ground. No matter how much peace you try to offer, they are always hostile. I'll give you a hint. It's not you they don't like. It's God. Hey, a few verses down in Deuteronomy 2 and verse 9, we have another nation, the Moabites. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. See, the Moabites were also relatives. Israel did not try to take any of their land. Moab still responded hostily. Israel didn't even mention what their mama did with Lot. They were nice the entire time. The problem is that Moab didn't like what God was doing for Israel and in Israel. It had nothing to do with Israel. It had everything to do with Israel's God. We need to wake up. Deuteronomy 2, verse 19. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war. For I will not give you I give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. All right. Somebody show me 
some hands in this room, if you've had a relative that you know God has an inheritance for, and yet you've watched them squander what God gave them, and yet you exist in hostility because they're unwilling to obey. Saints, Israel did nothing to provoke this. It was because of their friendship with God that caused them to live a life that was serious about their God. Not one who knew them from a distant past, knew them through their aunt, knew them through their mother, knew him personally. And that caused them to burn with hostility towards the real, right standard. Perhaps even refer to them as a cult. Now the verse that we decided we weren't going to emphasize on, that I'm going to just do it anyway. Jehoshaphat goes on to pray, asking his friend that God would judge the relatives that have lived in hostility forever. Now I know that sounds awfully unchristian of me. No, I, I understand it. And yet, in the character of the Almighty God, he does not wish for men to sit in hostility and disdain of his work forever, and he will bring judgment down like a hammer. The question is, will we be standing on the high ground or trying to reconcile in the valley? We're going to stand on the high ground. Look, I want to point out something in this passage so that we don't exegete it incorrectly. We have been given clear physical descriptions of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is mentioning these relatives, but whose eyes are on the Lord? Jehoshaphat. His eyes are not on the relatives. His eyes are on the Lord. That's important. It's because he was concerned about his friendship with God, not concerned about his friendship with the relatives that were in the valley. Let's pick up in verse 13. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Come on. Oh, man. Yep. With their wives and children and little ones. They didn't push them off. They didn't send them home. They didn't send them to the park in a caravan or a minivan. They brought them with them. Amen. Look, we could, send, we could spend hours on this verse, and we're not going to. We could preach entirely on this verse alone. But we're not going to. What we want to say is do not shield your family from the opportunity to learn to trust the Lord. Bring out those moments. Gather them with you. Gather your children, your wives, your little one with you when you're seeking the Lord. But I'm protecting them. You are protecting no. them. When you do that, you're being a coward. Oh, that's harsh. You want to have your own little private time to hear because you're afraid if you get it wrong. No, don't be afraid. If you get it wrong, you do it in front of them and they learn from what you do. Do not shield your ministry partners from the opportunity to learn to trust the Lord with you. If you are struggling with something, the first people you ought to go to are the people in your own home so you can fight together so that together you can learn to trust the Lord and see a victory together. You're not protecting them from, you know, seeing a bad side of you. That's not what's happening. That's what you think you do, but you're not. No, you're protecting you. You're protecting you because you are a coward. Bring them into the struggle with you. These, now hear me. These are obstacles that provide an opportunity to overcome. Amen. Obstacles provide an opportunity. They're not an opt-out. 
They're not something that is intended to drag you out and show you a failure. All of these obstacles are opportunities to overcome. Man, let others see your progress. Let them see you overcoming obstacles when you take those opportunities. I need them. You need them. They need them. I need to. You know what? I might have a time where I feel really beat down, but if I can join in a struggle with you and you overcome and we overcome together, I might little I might get a little pep in my step to go oh, fight yeah. my battle. Yeah. I need to see your struggle so I can fight with you. Man, how good would it be to have a brother right there with a shield while you take the sword and slice it down? Somebody say I need him. I need him. Point to your neighbor and say you need him. You need him. Point somewhere else and say they need him. They need him. We need obstacles so that we can see our God overcome. Yeah. Amen. We do. Let's do verse 14. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benahiah, the son of Jeliel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and a descendant of Asaph. Now I know you crazy LCM jokers, you're going to name your next child all of these names. <laughs> Look, uh, to, to answer in brevity, we want to show you a slide about this. This is not a random prophet. First Chronicles 25, elders, you are to recognize this. Verse 1, David together with the commanders of the army. That's not a, a low-impact flarping team. That's an actual <laughs> military army. Set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Ehan, and Jedithan for the ministry of prophesying. They happen to do it on instruments. When you read this, you find out very clearly. We put the pulpit commentary there for you. We put it even... A neat little diagram showing you the lineage. You find out Jahaziel is a descendant of Asaph. He was raised to give prophetic military intelligence. That is another thing we are raising in this house. Prophetic military intelligence ran in families. It was passed down from father to son. Son learned it from watching his daddy doing it. The same way that trusting the Lord is passed down from a father to a son. Your son won't learn it if he doesn't see you do it. These are a family affair. Everything in these passages tonight is screaming at us. You ready for it? Stand up for the sake of the generations. We have to learn to display trust in the Lord because of our friendship with God. That is what this chapter is communicating to us. Hey, what's verse 15? He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid and discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up. What? They will be climbing up. They'll be they'll be climbing? Yeah. Wow, there must be some geography at play here. Maybe. Try to pass the peak. And you will that happens to be gifted in prophecy because he was discipled well, that says, listen up, O King Jehoshaphat. 
and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is one man standing in a nation. And then he doesn't prophesy that your children are going to be born naked. Or that in the next five years you may or may not be married, but I hope you will be. Thus says the Lord. (laughs) Or whatever you feel like doing, do the opposite. In the immortal words of peace be upon him, I forget his name. He says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. Then the man gives specific military intelligence. Now, saints, military intelligence better be reliable. It needs to relate to the actual geography. We have a slide that we'd like to look at with you. Do you remember this from earlier in the evening? Notice that the text said they would be climbing up. That's because they're in that rift, and they're having to make a 4,000-foot ascent up to where Jerusalem is. Now, it's always astounding to me. It is. It's amazing. The degree to which disgruntled relatives... People who have just given up on their calling will actually fight to defame the people of God and hinder their work. It's a long, hard climb. They won't fight their own work and calling, but they'll fight to ruin yours. A 4,000-foot ascent just to badger the people of God and make their life hard. Man, that's astounding. It's like there's an ancient hostility that Amos spoke about. The Lord named the exact pass through this prophet and the gorge for several reasons. One of which is that one, it was only one of a few ways to get to Jerusalem. They're going from En Gedi up this ascent without going miles out of the way. They're not going around the easiest route. They took the shortest route to the people of God, no matter how difficult it was for them, even though that it was harder. Tell me that's not a demonic motivation. Tell me the reason your relative doesn't call you right after reforms with some kind of hateful comment or some kind of distracting dinner party, right when you've had a reform. We're having a family event, and we just want you to be there because we're going to abuse you either way, but we'd like you to hear it personally. (laughs) Look, we're going to move through this familiar passage, but we want you to pay attention to some of the action words that are the Christian's response who's standing on the high ground. Do you want some action words? Brother Linton, do us a favor. For this one, Stand up and read it for us. Oh, yeah! Take them up! Stand firm! See the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow. Go out! Now, as crazy charismatics, we all love to hear, you will not have to fight this battle. How many TV preachers have you heard proclaiming that verse saying, hey, this financial struggle you're in, you will not have to fight this battle. Was the preacher wearing a skirt when he said it? Look, it's true. The battle is not yours. But you have to take up a position. Yeah! You have to stand on the high ground. Yeah! The battle is not yours, but you have to stand firm. The battle is not yours, but you still have to go out and face the enemy. Look, the sense in which the battle was not theirs, well, is that God took the attack personally and has joined them in the battle. That's what God's really saying. He's saying, you're going to have to go out there, but I am going to be fighting with you. You don't get to stay home where it's comfortable. You have to go out, but you will see my deliverance. God was leading the battle. Hey, Israel, this battle is not yours to lead or command, 
You will be following me in the battle. It is my battle to command. All you have to do is stand firm, take up a position, and go out to meet them, and I will win the battle. Battles for the Lord are never won sitting in a defensive bomb shelter position. They are always won by going out to face the enemy, going out, moving forward, and trusting that he is with you. Remember, if you are with him, he is with you. He is with you Come as you on, go. Now, don't get confused, Christian soldier. We go out, but we don't go down. Right? They did not go down into the rift. They waited for the enemy to climb up, and they didn't even make it all the way. Hey, would you like some more action words? Yeah. This is verses 18 and 19. <laughs> oh, my God! Jehoshaphat bowed to the instructions of the Lord. He showed obeisance, if you're King James, to the Lord. He submitted himself, prostrated himself to the will of the Lord. That is the key to winning any battle. Keep going, brother. Oh, what'd they do? Yeah, they praised God. The Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. See, Jehoshaphat immediately bowed to the leadership of the Lord announced through the prophet. Can I tell you? Great things happen when we bow to the will of God. The priest, I love the priest. They stood up. Great things happen when we stand up in the will of God. Then, after bowing, after standing up, they praised God. Now remember, they praised Him in advance. They haven't won yet. Or have they? (laughs) See, great things happen when we praise in advance demonstrating faith in the sovereignty of God because we are friends with God. Amen. What's verse 20? Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah, and people of Jerusalem. All right, pause for me for a minute. So he bows. So he stands and he begins to praise God, believing that what he said is true before he's seen it. Now he says, Listen to me, Judah, and people of Jerusalem. Oh, man, he's starting to sound like the prophet. It's almost as if he believed the word of God and something of the word of God began to come alive in him. Now, let me tell you what he didn't do. (laughs) He didn't run out and say, hey, people of Judah and Jerusalem, the prophet said this. He didn't put the decision that was his to make off on the leaders who helped and guided him through the decision because that would be utterly faithless. He took the advice of the leader and then it was his decision. Oh, church, are you listening to me tonight or shall I call names? (laughs) Amen, you're listening. Amen. Have faith in the Lord your God. Have faith in his prophets. What started with a word from God 
that affected the leader, he is now transmitting to the people. He doesn't say, just have faith in me. He says, have faith in what God is doing through us as leaders. Let it start to work down into your own soul. Somebody in the room, tell me amen. Amen. We are going to have a rising faith in LCM. One that is not just based upon the faith of your leaders. That is the faith of your leaders that is getting down into your own soul. That something of a hope for the living God rises up in you. That says, hey, listen, have faith in what God is doing in this situation. It is a very rare occasion when you can separate these two items. Having faith in the Lord and in his prophets. Often when you can separate it, it's because something is wrong. People claim to have faith in the Lord while they do not have faith in the prophets and the leaders that he assigned. Saying that's a false claim. That's false advertisement to the fullest extent. It's actually an oxymoron to say, I have faith in God, but I don't have faith in his instrument upon the earth. There's definitely a moron involved. But at LCM, where we're standing on the high ground, we are asking that in your own life, that you would have faith in the Lord and, somebody say and, and the leadership provided by the Lord. Amen. If your life has been blessed by this ministry, then during the alarm of battle, whether it be your job, it be your workplace, or it be that friend you shouldn't have anymore, yeah. or the, the alarm of battle. You shouldn't talk to. That's right. Now is not the time to renegotiate the leaders and prophets that he's placed in your life. Amen. Actually, it's the time for something of their faith to seep down into your soul. I have a scripture I want to read you. Can you handle one scripture? Read it! This is 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? That's the one they want to renegotiate. Right there. No, 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 I was doing fine with the Lord. Really? Then go back to when we met you. You know that whole remember prophecy? Yes. We remember even if you don't. (laughs) Even though I may be an apostle to others, may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. Come on, LCM. Do you have faith in your leaders? Yes. Yes. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Saints. There are leaders in this room that are different to you than everyone else. We're not asking that a random guy on the street relate to a pastor as a pastor. He's not a sheep. Why would he look at him as a shepherd? But if the leadership in this house has demonstrated a faith and alarm when you were filled with cowardice, why don't we start by trusting it and recognizing, better or worse, we are the seal of that apostleship. I would like to be a garland around the necks of our pastors. I would like to be an honor to their name. We are their seal in the name of Jesus. Brother Linton. Pastor Nick Copeland, we also have appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his Yeah! Now pause right there. He doesn't appoint them to sing about how the battle's already won. He doesn't appoint them to sing about how the Lord's going to come through for us. He starts exactly where you should start when you're praying through the tabernacle. He starts with the splendor of his holiness, who he is to them and who he is to the rest of the world. It's almost like they're friends. Keep going, brother. And to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went out ahead of the army, saying, 
Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they begin to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon. Now wait a second. As they begin to sing and praise, not before, not whenever the prophet spoke, as they begin to sing and praise. Oh, hey, do you guys want to win? Yes! Well, then you might need to start singing and praising in your present circumstances. Amen. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who invaded Judah, and they were defeated. Yeah. Man, I love that. As they began to sing and praise. It's like the Lord told them what was going to happen, then waited to see if they were going to stand on the high ground and praise. And once they did, that is exactly what defeated them. You know this is how I fight my battle. Oh, don't you love that song? Yeah. I like it even more when it's true. Oh my goodness! <laughs> we said this earlier. I'll say it again. When we approach obstacles as opportunities, when we're looking at trials, when we're looking at giants, when we're looking at valleys. And we look at it, and we do not become fearful because there's an alarm. We look at it, and we go, ha that is an opportunity for my God to show the splendor of his holiness. Yeah. Yeah. When we look at those as opportunities and begin to praise in advance before the visible success, then it is a sign of faith and your friendship with God Amen. that shows that you know him as a friend. Hallelujah. Man, what friend is going to leave his friend his other friend down there left alone. When you have an intimacy with the Lord and you're his friend, you know he will come through for you because you know him. This is our goal. Yes. This is your goal. This should be every believer's goal to look at a trial in advance and already know the outcome. Come on, saints. Let's pick up. Verse 23. The men of Babylon and Moab rose up against the men. Oh, you can rise up, but you're about to get knocked down, Moab. Destroyed and annihilated. I kill you to death. Okay. <laughs> this is always the case with those that align themselves against God's friends. They end up annihilating each other over time. It takes time, but they always do it. In some cases, this is not evident for a few years. Sometimes it's even decades. But the result is inevitable. I can assure you that. Notice what happens in the next verse, 24. Whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of place? Okay, read the rest of the verse. And look toward the vast army. They saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Man, I love the word of God. These discontented relatives that are hostile turn on each other and devour each other. We've never seen that before. And they're watching from God's high ground. They're overlooking it. They're not down on the plane with it. They're watching What it. was that word? How did they look at it? Overlook. Oh, they had a different perspective, didn't they? Yeah. You know, in this passage, geographically, Israel was in a place that overlooks the enemy's armies. But spiritually, Israel was also in a place that overlooked the enemy's armies. Yeah. In the form of discontent relatives and people who had, had issues with their way of life. They're standing on the spiritual high ground that, that God had given them. And they saw deliverance. Wow. 
Now, you may not be able to change your geography. Now, what I mean by geography is your placement at work, your placement in your family. You may not be able to adjust your geography right away. Your placement where? At work. You can't control who shows up. You can't control where God has placed you. What you can control is the altitude at which you choose to stand on a spiritual level every single day. Now, I imagine if you trusted in faith towards the friend that you have in God, that perhaps eventually God would deal with the geography as well like he did in the passage. What if we started, instead of grumbling about our situation, and started to elevate our hope and faith? Do you mean it's more important for us to be purified and stand shoulder to shoulder than to annihilate the enemy? Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. The enemy is going to annihilate himself, but who will purify you? It is your position in these circumstances. And you have to learn to overlook, look beyond and above that present situation and start with what God wants to achieve inside of you. Oh, man, then we'll be his inheritance. You know, Daddy, I'm sure they were mourning the loss of their relatives, but verse 25 will have to tell us about it. Yeah. (laughs) It's a funeral dirge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, real somber. I can hear that lesbian singer with the little... Sarah McLaughlin. The animals are sad right there. (laughs) So the husband and his men went to carry off their plunder. Wow. And they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder, it took three days to collect it. Wow! On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Man, it was good of the enemy to assemble themselves and their possessions all in one place. Wow! It's like going to Walmart! (laughs) Like a good old-fashioned turkey shoot. Overwhelming obstacles may present overwhelming opportunities if you stand in faith. Remember that supernatural victory bringing supernatural plunder? Oh, yeah. The valley takes on the name Barakah, which means blessing. If you learn to face your obstacles as opportunities for your friendship with God to be shown, then your valleys will become blessings. (laughs) If you have a strong friendship with the Lord that puts you on the high ground, you can always look at those valleys as blessings because you know what God does with them. Just Anybody want to be in Barakah? Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to face the obstacle. you got to praise in advance. you got to be purified and stand with those that are. Amen. Then what is right now torture in three days' time becomes blessing that you can't even carry away. given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and with lutes and trumpets. (laughs) They looted with lutes. (laughs) Do you remember when Paul asked the Galatians that famous question? What happened to all your joy? (laughs) It's a clear sign in your walk with God when joyful praises cease from your lips. It's a clear sign that you're in defeat regardless of what your circumstances say. However, 
If you can go out in joy, then I'm pretty confident you'll return from the battle in joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, saints. And you have to be joyful wherever He puts your boundary lines. Saints, we get to show the sovereignty of God by the geography of our faces. Amen. I give you a hint. Everybody look at Abimbola right now. Smile, Abimbola. That's the geography of a face right there. It shows victory. Do you want to... Do you want to show victory? Yes. The positioning of your lips says something about your friendship with God. Just like the placement of Israel's geography says something about God's affection for them in the world. Let's do verse 29. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries where they, where they had heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Mm. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace. For his God... And giving him rest on every side. Wow. You mean to tell me that a man of God standing on the high ground wow. and trusting that the Lord will deliver him and obeying the words of the prophet produced a testimony? Yes. How man, how about that? Yeah. Not just a testimony to a neighbor, but a testimony that rung out to the kingdoms that were all around Jehoshaphat. Come on, I think I'd like to look at that slide again. Oh, let's, let's look at the earth's smile. Oh, goodness. Look at this geography. We have a little circle in red here. That's the center of God's eye. And a single man led his household rightly. You know what that began to do? Affect the nations surrounding this little circle. They began to hear about the testimony of a God that was able to deliver them from three other nations. God granted him shalom in his home because he stood for faith. Saints, we have the opportunity to follow in an example that is extraordinary. Several commentators point out that there was never a time in the divided kingdom after the split when Judah was more prosperous than this moment under Jehoshaphat's reign. There was never a time that they were more prosperous than this moment when they stood with the Lord. Great things happen in the midst of trials when you stand with God. Yeah. You want blessings in your life? Go ahead, ask him for blessings, but I know how you will obtain them. Better prepare yourself and be ready for war, because God will grant you the blessing. Your friendship with him is everything. Your intimacy with the dominator of the universe is your strength. And our joy expressed in warfare shows our actual faith to the world around us. You should be smiling right now. Let's go to verse 31. Her chili. I went to school with her. She was stacked high in transit. He walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not spare him. The evil was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people still had not set their hearts on the God of their fathers. Do you know what that tells you? They're riding on their leader's accomplishment. They had enough faith to follow their leaders, but they wouldn't have done it without them. Can I tell you, every leader wants to cure that problem? Yes. Okay? We're happy as leaders that you need us. It gives us purpose in life. 
It's a terrifying thought that if we weren't here, what you might have done without us, though. The goal here is for every man to have such a friendship with God that you don't need your leaders, but they're a blessing that you get your leaders. Come on now. Jehoshaphat on the high ground for much of this chapter and the last chapter before it. He's made several turns in his life and it looks like here he's going back down into the valley where he doesn't belong. It looks like he's not he's backing off of the high ground. But you know what? We do see the same things in our own lives, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. We see many times that we stand on the high ground, we go down in the valley, we learn from that. We get corrected, the Lord corrects us, our leaders correct us, and then we go back up to the high ground. We see that ebb and flow a lot of times in our lives. But you know what? We're going to end on a positive note here. I want to give you a view from the high ground into Jehoshaphat's life right here. I want to read to you the parallel account in 1 Kings 22. Aren't you glad for two or more witnesses? Yes! 1 Kings 22, verse 48 through 49 says... Now Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. At that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. Yes, he refused! In Chronicles, you see the very last verse says the ships were wrecked and were not able to set sail or trade. Well, who do you think did that? God. The Lord did. In Kings, the same account, you see that even after they were wrecked, Ahaziah says, let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. Kings makes it clear that Jehoshaphat refused to ally his men with the northern kingdom after this. Maybe it was because he had the arrow hole in his back from the last time that he did this. But I think it was because he had become an oak of righteousness. Yeah. Look, saints, it's easy to get wrapped up in battles that you shouldn't be in. We've all done that. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I mean, I'm speaking about my wife's personality. (laughs) It's easy to get wrapped up in business dealings, commerce, that you shouldn't. That's what happened here. They agreed to build ships together. But when it came time to ally men, Jehoshaphat would not do it. That was too far. So all he lost were the ships. Somebody said God will destroy those ships. God will destroy those ships. Be careful and never ally with anyone other than God and his friends. That's everything in your life. That is what it means to be on the high ground. Ally with God and his friends. Do not go and seek friendship with the world 
or the worldly Christian unless God himself directed you to. If you want to see more on that subject, consult the book of James. He grew up with Jesus, and Jesus shunned him and verbally rebuked him in almost every setting until Yaakov got right with God. I have a singular passage for you. Do you have time for a singular passage? It's on the subject matter of the faithfulness of God. Do you guys like that subject? Psalm 119, verse 74. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me. It's a good word. For I put my hope in your word. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous and in faithfulness. Somebody say faithfulness. Faithfulness. You have afflicted me. I want to tell you just a few things as friends and family before we read verse 76. Many of you have started out on a noble path. You've recognized that there are areas you must go higher. That you've been in the valley far too long. You've dwelt in sin. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in it. Do not stop in it. And the faithfulness of our God is one that if you go 75% of the way, He's willing to bring disaster in your life to show you and correct you. He'll destroy those ships. It's actually His faithfulness saying, Son, you need to go all the way. Don't stop halfway. Don't stop 75%. Go all the way. My word is worth it. You are my friend. We have confidence in the faithfulness of God in your life as well as our own. In faithfulness, you afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. The note that we would like to end on. I've been covered so many different topics that are pertinent to our very lives. That it's time for us to respond to the faithfulness of God. And when you recognize that he was being faithful to you by bringing a disaster to ships, to family, to your circumstances that you turn back to the promise of God in your life and stand up and walk in it. Our God will meet you when you go to the high ground and you will see deliverance from Him. The Lord is the best of friends. The truth is, is He will correct you when you're in those valleys. That ought to be a very comforting thing, but also a warning to us. The Lord will correct you. He is a faithful God. It said about Jehoshaphat in this passage tonight that they had cause for confidence and rejoicing. Amen. Amen. Tonight we have cause for rejoicing because he is a faithful friend. Amen. He is a faithful friend to correct you even though you may be down in the valley right now. And that correction comes from the leaders. It comes from the prodding of the Holy Spirit. God putting his finger on your heart. Man, I know there are people in this room that can feel that. That is God's kindness to you as a friend. That is Him leading you back to the high ground. So now what we want to do is we want to stand up and get back to that high ground. We want to stand up and rejoice because we have a God who is faithful. We have a God who is faithful to bring us out of those valleys. But remember, you do not have to fight this battle, but you do have to stand firm. You do have to go out. You do have to take up your position. God is fighting on your behalf as a friend, but there is something that you must do. So who is your BFF? God. 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 
He's my best father forever. My best friend forever. And I want to be friends with those that are friends with him. Amen. And if they don't like him, then they're not going to like me either. Friends, you need to adjust your moral compass. That needs to be true north. Those that are close to him should be close to you. Those that do not want to be close to him, you should not want to be close with. It's really that simple. That's what the high ground looks like. But I I want them to get saved. You need to get your marching orders from the Lord. All attempts to do it on your own have resulted in the loss of ships. And we don't want you to have arrow holes in your back. But if that's what it takes, then the Lord will provide it. We didn't learn these things in a classroom. We're going to pray. These last few weeks, you guys have repented so well. We can do anything you want to do. But we're not looking for everybody on their face at this altar. We're looking for everybody to experience true friendship with God. That will grow our friendship. Those that don't like Him should not like you. You should put that just at the center of every decision that you make. Father, we do thank You for the friendship that is ours. We love, Lord, that You have revealed Yourself to us. We are drawn to Your holiness, mighty God. Lord, we want to cut away from our lives the things that don't belong. Lord, so that we can look into Your cleansing labor and become the friend that You called us to be. Lead us by Your Spirit, Lord. Direct us in Your Word. Father, let us stand at a golden altar of relationship with You that You might truly be the King of our lives. We dedicate this evening and every evening thereafter to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.